As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast with your host, Mike Sipple Jr. Hello, Talent Magnet community. I just wanted to uh, thank you for tuning in to this episode. You are going to hear from one of our faculty, Don Frerichs, who is leading an extraordinary leader series as a part of the Talent Magnet platform. Don is one of our longstanding faculty members. He's an incredible coach, an incredible leader, and he is highlighting extraordinary leaders as a part of this series. So we hope you enjoy. Thank you for tuning in. And without further ado, I turn it over to Don. Thank you for joining the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. This is Don Frerichs, guest host for Mike Sipple. And today we are taping the Extraordinary Leader Series. I am so glad to have Tom Ogburn with me. Tom, say hi to everybody. Hello, how are you doing? Tom is an extraordinary leader. You're going to learn a lot about him and his background today. Tom has been successful in multiple organizations as a leader, general manager, and chief revenue officer. He is great at transformation and turnaround and build strong teams that deliver excellent results. I know him personally and can vouch for his ability to lead. In fact, one of my daughters worked for Tom and he helped Mary grow and flourish. In fact, Tom, if we told the whole story, I think people would just laugh. I think about it often because Mary, I believe, went over to London for you and your team because the marketing group needed some support. And she kind of raised her hand and said, hey, yeah, I'll go to London. And uh, when she comes back, she tells me, hey, dad, I think I want to work in London all the time. I'm going to ask them if they will move my job from Dayton, Ohio to London. (laughs) And I said, Mary, you're crazy. You can't do something like that. That's just nuts. So being typical Mary, she talked to her boss and her boss's boss and then the CFO and finally got to you. And I don't know what the story's like on your end, but I'm just still blown away that you guys are so kind to her to actually move the whole role from Dayton, Ohio to London and changed her life forever. Well, that's really funny. Every time I see you, I feel a little guilty that I, I moved your daughter an ocean away. But, you know, I think when we talk you know, about leadership and development and growth, sometimes it's about taking those chances. And I can just imagine that Mary has grown a great deal by uh, learning a new culture and, uh, and experiencing the London life. She really has. Thank you for making a difference in her life. Tom has had a great experience for our listeners. We should tell them a little bit about how much your leadership skills and ability grew while you're at LexisNexis. For those that don't know, LexisNexis is a global provider of legal, regulatory, and business information. It's interesting that there's a lot of people that know Tom. And if you have ever worked for him, you're probably like one of his direct reports who said to me, no person has been more important to me in terms of my professional growth than Tom. He's meant the world to me as a leader, coach and mentor. Wow. Tom, how does that feel when you hear that kind of feedback? I didn't know you were going to, you know, hit me with a quote like that, but that's great to hear because when I think about what, you know, my personal mission is, is it really is about helping people and building strong organizations, but you do that by building strong people within those organizations. So it's good to know you're having an impact. And I don't know if you called my wife or something like that, but uh, that sounds great. It's interesting. I, one of the themes that I've seen through all my interviews with extraordinary leaders is that there's a, a real sense of humility. It's hard to hear comments like that. I, I personally don't like them either. 
And I'm sure that makes you a little uncomfortable at times, but it does somewhat validate that your leadership is making a difference, right? It, it seems to not just, it's not for your own sake. So you hope that it does have an impact like that. Would you agree with that? I would. And, you know, I, I firmly believe that, you know, one of the first things you have to have as a leader is just a desire to coach and develop the folks in your organization. You're going to execute better. You're going to get better outcomes. You're going to get the results you want by putting together a great team. So it's not just all altruistic, right? But improving the lives of those folks that work with you is very important. And, you know, it's one of the reasons I enjoy it. I know this sounds a little corny, but it's one of the reasons I enjoy when I have an organization of scale, because I know that if I do my job right, the people in my organization are going to have great experiences, are going to grow, develop, and learn. And you can have an influence on not only the folks you work with, but the folks they go home to. So yes, it's a big motivator for me to do work that elicits comments like that. I was listening to Patrick Lencioni, his new uh, book. I don't know if you've seen it. Let me see if I can pull it up on my Audible. And I just love it. It's called The Motive. And one of the things that Patrick was talking about is that it should be a top priority of the CEO. And I'm thinking back to your role as president at uh, LexisNexis to coach and develop others. You just said that. But Lencioni is quick to say that most CEOs and leaders at that level don't believe it's their primary job to coach and develop others. You said it's very important. How did you come around to believing that it's one of maybe the top five things that you do? How did that occur to you? Boy, that's a good question. Let me think about that. So I had a leader early in my career. Her name was Beth, Beth Corey. And she was you know, really intent on making sure that not only were you successful, but that, that you knew why you were successful so that you could repeat it. And she called that being consciously competent. And, you know, I think early in my career, you know, you can kind of get by on your instincts and your gut as a manager, maybe. But I eventually, when I working with Beth and the idea of being consciously competent, realized that you have to continue to learn, you have to develop philosophies, you have to develop sort of your winning ways. Early on in my career, I had a team and I wanted to be a nice manager and I wanted to make sure that everybody was happy and all of those kind of cultural type things, but we weren't a good team. We weren't a winning team. And what I learned very quickly was that in terms of philosophy, that the most important piece of your team is the talent. And, you know, you have to make sure that you put together the best, you know, athletes on the field for lack of a, a better analogy. And I went about changing the team dramatically in terms of the roles people played, the players on the team. And that early on, trying to be consciously competent and identifying what was going to be the key to turning around that particular team led me to really putting T, talent, as the first kind of pillar of my leadership philosophy. And then, of course, if you have talent, There's all sorts of things you have to do with it, but coaching and developing that talent is critically important. Thanks for sharing that. It's so interesting that you noticed that right away that you couldn't win without talent. I know because we've talked before that you have a whole philosophy around talent, inspiration, and process. This might be a good time just to share with people your philosophy because you obviously didn't just do this haphazardly, try to put it together in a meaningful way. And I think that might be one of the things that extraordinary leaders do is they try to make sense out of the, the complexity of leadership, which is so big and so huge and can be so overwhelming. 
you seem to synthesize it down to these three things, talent, inspiration, and process. Could you say more for our listeners? Yeah. So first off, it, it spells tip. And I love things that I can remember with, uh, you know, put, putting little uh, words together with them. So talent, inspiration, and process. So I use those words on purpose so they spell tip. But And that's the right order too, I believe. Talent is most important. And I, and I remember always, you know, as a new manager and trying to get my team and trying to become, uh, you know, deliver better results. And there were some non-performers on the team and and, I, and some great performers on the team. And I remember very distinctly as I'm struggling as a new manager trying to figure this out, when I finally changed some of the players, one of the top performers said to me, what took you so long? And it was really interesting because, you know, you sometimes think accountability and good culture can't go together, but it's exactly the, the opposite. Talented people want to work with talented people and talented people want to win. And so they want to be on the best team they could possibly be on. So talent is the first thing you got to do, get it right. Then once you have it right, it's very important to keep it right. And so by that, I mean, that's where the inspiration comes in. You want to get this group of talented folks on board, but then you also want to make sure that they stay with you, they thrive with you. And you really do that in two or three ways. One is clear direction. They need to know what's expected of them. Two is winning. Quite frankly, uh, you know, it's more fun to win. Number three is development, making sure that they're continuing to grow and develop as individuals. So if you if you give clear direction and you win and have fun winning, and then you coach and develop, you're going to inspire your players, that talented team, to run through walls. And then the third part is process. Critically important. Once you have talent and once you have them inspired, if you have the right plays, the right process to help them win and to help them succeed, there's really nothing you can't uh, you can't accomplish. I love the the focus on uh, the whole process of tip. It's not just talent, but it's the environment that you create through the inspiration and motivation of clear direction and winning and developing people, knowing that that's a priority, but also giving them the tools to actually win with the process that's available there too. I think it was Tim Brabender that said to me, I don't know if I'm such a good leader or if we just develop such a good culture that people like being here and therefore I'm part of that culture. And so they think of me as a good leader. When you said winning, and, and I, I do think sometimes people feel like, well, you know, you shouldn't talk about winning and losing. It's not always that competitive. But I, I know you and I have a real different perspective on that, that winning isn't everything, but it is the most important thing. And if you're not winning, it's really hard, as you said, to keep that top talent. But talk to me about what you did with your culture so that it, it felt like it was a culture of winners, a culture of winning. And and that there was actually some competition that was very important for you and your teams because you had some really serious competitors that were on your heels, right? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it, it's funny. Again, I think this ties into consciously competent. At some points at the beginning, it's just sort of natural acts of trying to create culture, like, you know, encouraging people, recognizing performance and so forth. But as my career went on and as I took on different roles and complexity maybe increased and so forth, it became more and more about intentionally doing things to make sure, you know, that you're getting the success that you want. And, you know, I think there's really a couple things that create a winning culture. Number one is, you know, defining it, right? You know, what does success look like? How are you going to know that you should have a great celebration at the end of the month or the quarter of the year? You know, define what winning looks like. The other is giving the organization whichever organization you're in, a sense of purpose, the kind of, you know, why are we doing this? You know, what does success look like? And 
there's a, an approach that I learned not too long ago that, that I, I've deployed a couple of times that I really like, and it's called Commander's Intent. I don't know if you've ever heard this or not, but you know, it, it sort of plays off D-Day. And you know, when they were putting together their plans for D-Day, you know, this group was going to land here, this group was going to land here, here's the mission. And there's all these moving parts. Well, you know, just like anything else, once the things start, they don't go anywhere near as planned. Folks landed in the wrong places, equipment didn't arrive, units were split up. But before they embarked on their mission, there was a very clear commander's intent. They knew exactly what needed to get done. They knew what bridges needed to be taken, what towns needed to be secured, and it was across everybody. So there was no room for misinterpretation of what the intent of the mission was. So what happened was when teams landed in all different places and everything was sort of in disarray, they knew the mission. So units formed from different countries and they still executed on taking the bridges and and securing the towns and so forth. So things are going to go wrong, but as long as everybody knows the primary mission and can adapt, then you're going to get success. And an example in business that we used uh, at my last company, Mitratech, in our customer success program was our commander's intent was that every single customer would give a positive review if asked. Mm. And so everything we did, it didn't have to come from specific direction from me. Everybody knew that if they're doing something with a customer, they should be doing it so that that customer would give a positive review, right? And that's part of the reason why we, you know, we saw our retention rates improve significantly and so forth, because everybody in the organization was part of that commander's intent that every customer we engage with would give us a positive review. So when you do that and you create that sort of organizational alignment around what the mission is, and then you measure what you defined as success, it makes a huge difference. I love uh, where you're taking the audience in terms of helping them understand. That's a great story about commander's intent. Was there ever a time where you know you were defining this winning culture and uh, helping people get it early on? Because I, I think that's where, to me, cultural development is really a challenge, right? When you're trying to go from a culture to a new culture or just trying to make it more well-rounded. Did you ever find that you ran into resistance in a way that you know you didn't expect it and it was really strong and and there had to be some form of of leading people through that resistance to the new culture, the new ideas, and and that maybe accountability was a key thing. Did were there times in your career where you've had to confront those kind of scenarios? Resistance is a strong word. You know, what I would go to is I, I believe there's sometimes where it takes a bit of work to get people to believe in the direction. And maybe that leads to resistance or or sort of that fear of change and, and so forth. And I'll give you one example. When I started to build a, a news and business division at LexisNexis, the news and business portfolio was really secondary. It was, you know, that LexisNexis primarily sells to law firms and primarily sells to, you know, research into law firms. And as a side of that, Lexis put news content on the platform and there was a a solution called Nexus that you know was pretty widely used in academic and in libraries and so forth. But you know, in 2009, and so with the economy poor and Google really you know fully embraced, this part of the Lexus Nexus portfolio was really struggling. And I was uh, tapped to put together a unit to fix that. Right, and so a lot of people were brought into this unit with sort of this impression that we're part of the. Lowest rung of LexisNexis. Nobody cares about news and business. We're not going to get any investment. And how are we possibly going to succeed? 
And instead of, you know, trying to fight that sort of, you know, headwind, it sort of became our rally cry that the fact of the matter is nobody believes we can do this. Let's change that perception quickly. And let's be the team that does something nobody believes. So it's almost like you turn this disbelief into the rally cry that we're going to prove somebody wrong. So you figure out what emotion you're going to play on. And that that prove people wrong is a really good emotion. Mm. So, you know, BIS sort of became our news and business division, which was business insight solutions at the time, sort of became this little engine that could and created a culture that was unique. It was almost as if we were a startup within a large, you know, publicly traded company with the mission in a way to return this business to growth and ultimately prove the business wrong, that this news and business platform could be hugely successful. And, you know, over the six, seven years that I ran that business, we went from a a US only business to a global business doing work in 16 different countries. And we doubled in size, we quadrupled profits, and it became that, you know, growing little engine outside the legal market that was no longer a drag on the rest of the business, but a, a strong contributor. And I think it really started with that notion of let's prove them wrong. So you just got to kind of find out which, uh, what emotional trigger to, to pull on. I don't know if that answers your question, but that, that's a, an example of where I think the team didn't believe what was possible. But once it started to build momentum, it really, it just continued to like a freight train. That's a wonderful story. I, I love when we look back over our careers and we can look at the times where we took something that was maybe underperforming and help the team believe that it could perform and then watch them do it. I know as a leader, you probably step back and like that, those six or seven years were probably the best part of my career, uh, just because you got to see that upfront and, and personal, that what, that's your experience as a leader, you know, transforming. That's why you're so good at it. A team that didn't know how to win to a, a winning team globally, that's a big deal. Congratulations. Yeah, it, it, was, it was absolutely a lot of fun. And I think you mentioned team multiple times in that. The experience of seeing a turnaround is great. What's even better is the camaraderie and the uh, relationships that were built and the team that was just fantastic to do so. One person that was really proud of you, Keith Hawk, your boss, who's been on the show. And uh, we both love everything that Keith does and says, but I have to share with our listeners, this is how he describes Tom. Tom is the most caring, people-centric leader I've ever worked with. That's a big statement for Keith because he's worked with a lot of great leaders. He goes on to say, He inspires collaboration, loyalty, team spirit, and a great many other positives due to this one sterling strength. I know that's probably hard to hear, but Keith doesn't say things just to make people feel good. So when he says that, he says it with precision because he knows who you are and what you've done, Tom. I know those are all positive characteristics, but one of the things you and I've also talked about is that leadership for leadership's sake is is really not that beneficial. It's really about getting results right? Would you want to tell our listeners a little bit about your philosophy about the impact and the output of leadership is really about driving business? It kind of goes back to the, you know, winning is more fun than not. But the ultimate, you know, of any organization, it doesn't really necessarily matter if it's a corporation or a government entity or a nonprofit. You know, the ultimate mission, right, is to get better, to execute better, to perform better, and to deliver the results that you're expected in. So. You can have a happy, happy team for a short period of time, but if you're not delivering results to which people are proud of and which are moving the business forward, that's not sustainable. So to have a culture that you want, that where it gives you the latitude to you know, be caring and create 
uh, lasting relationships and develop people and see the, the personal growth that can happen, you really have to get results. So you're not just in this for giggles, right? You're in this to make sure you get results. So I think it's important because, and I love what Keith said, and you know, it, it really, it really means a lot coming from somebody that I respect so much. But part of being a caring leader is caring enough to make sure that the business is successful, so that you can do the things that you want for your people. Caring without results will ultimately lead to decisions and actions that aren't the kind of actions you want to take. That's a great point. Thanks for being willing to go there. I think sometimes it's easier to talk about the soft side of leadership, the caring and compassion, which absolutely has to be there. Empathy, emotional intelligence, those are all things that people would use to describe you. But you're also very determined to deliver results. I think you're very competitive. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, I, and I think that particularly in, in sales, I often joke that sales is if I could declare what I wanted to be when I grow up, if you asked me in eighth grade, I probably would have been a professional football player. But, you know, there are certain skills that I just uh, I just lack. And I'm sure anybody who's listening on this is laughing a little bit right now at how much I lack them. But the, the fact is, sales is the one place where it's almost like being in uh, sports. You keep score, you win the year and you start at zero again the next year. And so, yeah, you have to be competitive. And, and I certainly am. And I think Balancing that with being caring is probably one of the, you know, the personal struggles. You know, you have to compartmentalize some of the things you do and some of the actions you take as a leader in order to, to get the results that you want. And then balance that with the impact that it might have on individuals and whether the role changes or whether the organization goes in a different direction or what have you. That balance is difficult. But usually it's pretty clear that if folks aren't being successful, no matter how much you're trying to comfort them or care for them, they're not going to be happy. And so that kind of goes back to the other earlier question. And that's why, you know, winning is so important because you can't drive the happiness and the, the strong engagement of your organization if you're not being successful. I know a uh, little bit about your family of origin. And I'm smiling because I'd love for you to explain to everybody where you fit in the birth order. And <laughs> my guess is you had to have some of that competitiveness come from your family. I'm sure your siblings may or may not agree with that, but what do you think? Yeah, no, they, I think, you know, it's funny. I sometimes joke with people when they talk, ask me about my organizational background and so forth. I'll, I'll tell them that my first experience with organizational design and developing strong culture comes from being the youngest of nine children. And there's eight boys and one girl. So I had to be competitive just to get a meal to get my share. Uh, I'm just, just kidding, but it was, it was a great environment. And one of the things that I love about it is our family is very diverse in what we do. You know, we got, you know, business leaders, we got lawyers, doctors, engineers, PR folks. Now, now I got to think, make sure I don't miss anybody. But, you know, it's very different architects. We, it's very, very different what we do. And, you know, I think any one of my siblings could be president of the United States. But when we get home for a holiday party or something, you know, we just get right back in that order. And you're not anything special. You're just one of the family. That's great. I love that. I think that has a lot to do. I when I meet someone for the first time, I, I sometimes spend a lot of time talking about family of origin because I think it defines uh, who we became early on in our life. Can we carry that throughout our life? It doesn't have to be the only definition of who we are, but it does have a big impact. And so I appreciate you sharing that. Tom, I think you've said in the past that instincts and talents will only take you so far. Instincts and talents will only take you so far. I believe that to be true, but it's interesting that you have been in development for a lot of years now. And I think one of the questions I'd love to, to have you kind of wrestle with is like, 
if you were to start over as a leader early, you know, let's say you're starting your career all over again, what would you do different than you had done to grow your skills? What would be some things that you might offer to our listeners that looking back, you wish you would have done more of or less of or tried to do differently? Yeah. And first off, I think that question is interesting in the sense that, you know, I think it's a good barometer and a good thing to do as part of your development. Look back at your roles and ask yourself, what would you do differently? And then look at the role you're in and saying, are you repeating the same mistakes? It's actually every time you get moved into a new role or promoted or take a new company, you should look back at that other role and right away, write down, if you could start that role over again, what would you do differently? And use that to inform what you do in the future. So that's kind of one of the things that I think is important. If you actually look at a role and say, I didn't do anything I could have done better, then I think you have a a more of a self-awareness issue than anything else. So I think the day you do a job flawlessly is probably the day you should retire. And so uh, I think that's that's important. So now if I to answer your question directly, if I go back in my career and think, what would I do differently? Is I think there's two things. One is I used to have a perspective, and I guess the whole expression climbing the ladder supports this, that you know, you start as a sales rep, then you become a sales manager, and then you become a VP, and then you become a, a you know, a CRO or what have you, and it's a straight line, like a ladder. And what I came to realize is that it is not a straight line. It's more of a zigzag. And as a leader, if you only do things in a straight line, you're not going to grow perspective and you're not going to grow sort of that viewpoint of what other other roles uh, would uh, would do. So I decided to take some chances and I shift markets. I sometimes sideways, sometimes down, sometimes up. I wasn't really worried about a title. I was more worried about experience. So I did a product role. I did a training role. I took on a strategy role. I switched markets, as I said. I did a GM role. And all of those things helped me do my next job because I got perspective of another role. So I think one thing I would go back to is realize that even within the same organization, it doesn't have mean you have to jump companies, to not think of a career as a straight line, but think of a career as a series of experiences that help you do X better. In my case, you know, lead better. The other thing about it is, you know, they say that that wisdom comes with age. It kind of ties to that last statement, but I actually think wisdom comes with experience. Mm. And, you know, while those things often happen in parallel, I think if I would go back in time, it would be accelerate the process of doing different things and taking those chances and learning different perspectives. So take more to more risk. And early in my career, I believe I did my job well and I worked hard and I got done with work and I went home and it was the next great. It was just a job. And I think making learning your mission and kind of that looking back on past roles and always learning from is something I wish I would have started earlier in my career. So if, if I've got, if I'm talking to somebody that's, you know, in their early part of their leadership career, I would suggest to them is get as many experiences as fast as you can get them. And there's lots of different ways to get experiences, not just changing jobs. And then always look back on what you're doing, see your career as a zigzag, not a straight line, and make learning your mission. I love it. I know that uh, one of the fundamental beliefs you have is the mission is to get better each day, each week, each month, each quarter, each year. And I hear you talk about it. I know it's one of your passions now. Do you find that most people that are in leadership roles have that or is this kind of unusual? That's a great, great, great question. You know, I think everybody who's in a leadership role wants to get results that improve their team and their performance and so forth. 
Their motives may be different. Sometimes it's for their career, their resume, their money. But I think most leaders want to improve the organization. But I think sometimes it's they don't break it down into small pieces. And so it's, you know, here's our goal for the year. And, oh, we missed our goal. I wonder why. Or we hit our goal. Yay, we're great. Whereas I think where, you know, maybe, you know, I think about it a little differently. It's really trying to figure out, can you say down to the day, did you win the day? Did you win the week? Did you win the month? Did you win the quarter? Did you get better? It's amazing if you get a little bit better, small increments, right? If you get a little bit better each day, then it's amazing what you'll accomplish in a year. But if you look at the whole year and you don't really have a plan for how to get better each day, you won't make the same improvements. Yeah, so what I hear you saying is like learning is not just intellectual stimulation. It's not just reading more books, listening to more podcasts, going to more workshops. It's really to the degree that you're talking about. It's breaking it down through some really strong analysis about what's working, what's not working. What do we need to do more of, less of? And breaking it down to, as you said, the smallest pieces until you know what winning looks like in the, the shortest amount of time, even down to the day. Yeah, and it's interesting. To, and I, I can't remember his first name, but the, uh, I saw an article about the British cycling coach. Brailsford is his last name. And Britain had done nothing in cycling before the UK actually had their own Olympics. And he had this whole philosophy of you know, incremental improvements. And it was amazing how he could change performance by doing very little things and things like wiping the tires with an alcohol wipe before the race, because that got your grip a little bit better. They actually painted the inside of their vans white so that they could see if they were dirty and they didn't want the bikes to be in a dirty van because the little specks of dirt and little incremental improvements made massive. I mean, I think they went from winning four medals in previous Olympics to winning 12 medals in the Olympics that they, they held in the UK. And it was just these, I had this idea of making incremental improvements. And so I think, it, I think breaking it down and, and trying to learn from you know, each day what you could do better. And then also having very specific goals and making sure you achieve them. It's a great point. I think I read the same story. And, and I believe it went on that even beyond that, that first Olympics, which they dominated, like for the next 10 years, they were the dominant cycling group in the world, right? Yeah. And it, it not, only, not only, you know, the sprint cycling, but also like Tour de France and they were absolutely, absolutely. And of course, you know, what happens is everybody copies you, right? Sure. And so then you've got you to keep coming up with these things. So that, that's kind of the point is it, it can't be, okay, I learned that, now we're good. It's got to be continual. That's excellent. I love breaking it down and, and using incremental improvements. I think James Clear is the one that maybe where I read this story, he wrote the book Atomic Habits, which is fantastic for our listeners if they want to pick up a great book. But he talks about making an improvement 1% per day is much greater than trying to get a quantum change or a big, huge pivot and trying to grow things by 10%. I think he's right. But it makes me think about it. One of the questions that I often get from our younger listeners, people that are early in their careers, Tom, is like, how can I speed up my development? And when I hear that question, I kind of cringe a little bit because you and I, we've been at it for decades. So you know, it's hard for me to think about condensing what we've done into a much shorter time frame. However, I really appreciate the question because it pushes me way out of my comfort zone. And I just don't know if I have a good answer. So I want to struggle with it with you, if you don't mind. If we were to try to answer our listeners' questions, how could I speed up my development as a leader? You know, I've already talked about wisdom comes from experience, be willing to zigzag, breaking down learning so that you can see it in small pieces 
being able to focus on the fact that you can get better and make it a priority. Those are all good things. Anything else that occurs to you that could actually speed up the process of development? The first thing I, I'm going to say might be counterintuitive because it, it might require slowing it down. But the very first thing to do is get results in the role you're in and be yeah. very capable of articulating what drove those results. So make sure that you are consciously competent, as I mentioned earlier, in the role that you're in, because then that opens up opportunities. Yes. Right, so that, that would be the first thing that I would, I would say. The other thing is, as you're starting to try to develop into a leader, the first thing is be authentic. Don't try to be something you're not. Be the leader you are, because you can't fake it for a career. You might fake it for an interview or for the next role or whatever, but it'll tear you apart if you're leading in a way that's not you. So be authentic. So those are kind of high level, get the results and then be authentic. But then I think it gets to really take some time and whether you do this informally with peers or friends or through something like Strength Finder or a 360, find out what your strengths are. Find out what you're really good at early on in your career. And I think it's Zinger Folkman that, that when they do 360s, they really emphasize focusing on your strengths and the idea that if you can improve you know, your strengths or get a few more exceptional aspects of your leadership, that will drive you much better than trying to fix a weakness. Now, if your weakness is a fatal flaw that like, if you do this, no one will ever want to work for you, well, you got to fix that or, or move on to something else. But really, I think that it's human nature to want to focus on your strengths anyway. So their, their point is developing your strengths are going to be, it's going to get much better results than, than you know, trying to make everything perfect. And in doing so, you have to be, you know, the purpose of that is to be very self-aware. And that's really, really important. And then the other thing that I would say is early on in your career is kind of, uh, you know, if you're really serious about leadership and you're really serious about being a constant learner, then establish a board of directors. Find a group of people that come from different backgrounds that know you well enough to give you advice, are willing to give you real advice. And, you know, it doesn't have to be a formal thing. But there should be three to five people in your life that you can go to with hard questions and will tell you hard things about yourself so that you can continue to grow and develop. And they'll point you in right directions for, for some of the things that you need and so forth. So really try hard to have a sort of your own personal board of directors that are helping you get to where you want to be. You do that earlier in your career than, than maybe I did, and you'll accelerate things, I think. That's great. Let me play them back, Tom. I think these are really good. First, get results in the role that you're in. Second, be authentic. Third, get feedback really about your strengths and grow your self-awareness. Be aware if there's any fatal flaw. Fourth, find a board or create a board of directors. Ask them for the hard feedback that you may not be getting from other people. Look for advice that they can give you that you haven't heard before. But kind of push yourself out of your comfort zone through that group of people. Is that right? That's exactly right. I wish I would have said it exactly like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I'm taking notes because you've got the good stuff. I would add to it two things. One would be, I think the power of emotional intelligence is really huge. You know, obviously, one of the competencies of emotional intelligence is self-awareness. And that I hear you talking about that through all of those things. I wasn't really self-aware for much of my early career, I think. I think it was kind of just operating in the dark and you know, working as hard as I could and doing as much as I could. And knows the grindstone kind of stuff. And I'm not really sure if I was taking enough time to reflect on what was working, what wasn't working with my style and 
and how I was making decisions and how I was motivating people. And I wish I would have spent more time understanding what I look like through the eyes of others. And that's why that 360 that you talked about from Zenger Folkman or any source could really be powerful to our listeners. So I, I think there's great power in emotional intelligence, understanding it, getting feedback about it, and intentionally developing yourself in that, in that area. And the other one I'll, I'll leave for our listeners is I think that, and this is, comes from one of your beliefs, you believe that leaders either add energy or take energy away from every conversation, communication, and meeting. And so I'm kind of stealing that from you because I, I believe that's the other thing that we need to be very aware of is that our energy as leaders affects everyone else that we talk to, work with, meet with each and every day. And if we're not maximizing our energy, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual, if we're not renewing that energy each and every day, we don't have very much of it to give away. And our job as leaders, I think, is to give that energy away so that we can inspire and motivate people to a higher level than they can do on their own. Would you agree with that or would you change that up a little bit? No, and, I, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that I really, really believe in is this, this idea that you know we've all been in the room when a leader comes in and raises everybody's game just because of the way they talk about things, their energy, their enthusiasm. And we've all been in a room where a leader comes in and says something or does something or their body language shows something and you can just tell they're not in it. And I just firmly believe that you have to make a conscious choice in every room you enter as a leader that you're going to add energy. Otherwise, you're taking energy away because there's no neutral ground for the leader. And so if you walk into a meeting or a presentation or a customer event, you're either adding it or taking it away. And guess what? It's a lot better to add energy. You're going to get better results. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I just firmly believe that. That's cool. Well, this has been fun. I uh, have enjoyed this a lot. I hope our listeners have gotten a lot out of it. I've got a whole page of notes that I'll go back and have to synthesize. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being, first of all, a great leader for all the people that have had the chance to work with you. I uh, did not add that uh, one of the folks that worked with you said that your profound strengths were communication, empowerment and trust, and vulnerability. And I know because we've talked about this before, that, that last one, vulnerability, that is so awkward to talk about. And when people recognize you for that, does that kind of make you smirk a little bit? Like, uh, I'm not sure about that. It's funny because 10 years ago, I might have been like, vulnerability, how's that a strength? But now I, I actually think it's not always macho, if that's an expression still used, to be vulnerable. But I actually think it's part of being an authentic leader. Don, you kind of you've taken me aback with these with these quotes that you reached out to folks. So it, it's nice to hear those things, but a little awkward as you stated earlier. But when I think about vulnerability, what vulnerability means is that you don't have all the answers, and you're not trying to fake that you do, and you're willing to build the right answer with the team, make a decision, and then make sure you're aligned. But vulnerability is basically you don't have all the answers, and I also think vulnerability is kind of part and parcel to being authentic. I think most human beings are vulnerable. And if you never show that, then you can't really necessarily connect with people in a, in a deeper way. So I, I, I would go ahead and take vulnerability as a badge of honor and, and take that as a great compliment. Well, that's a good way to end. I, I know our listeners got a lot out of this and I appreciate your time more than you'll know. If you would like to leave us some feedback or maybe pose a question to Tom, we would love to try to get you an answer. 
You can do that by going to talentmagnetinstitute.com backslash podcast and leave your question there. And we'll try to respond as soon as we get it. Tom, again, thank you so much for being with us and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, Don. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios, and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Zippel Jr. Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.